We are eavesdropping on the longest recorded conversation between Jesus and an individual. Last week's conversation was with an insider named Nicodemus. And Jesus showed us that no one, not even a religious insider like Nicodemus, is beyond the need for God's grace. This week, Jesus is talking to the ultimate outsider. And he's showing us through this conversation that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. This woman did not have any plans to enter into a conversation with Jesus. In fact, she would have avoided it if she could have. But Jesus drew this unnamed woman into a conversation that would not only transform her own life, but also the lives of many of her neighbors. And John is letting us in on this conversation because Jesus wants to do for you and for me what he did in, that, in the life of that woman at the well. He wants us to see ourselves in this woman and to see himself the way that she learned to see him and to believe in him on that day. So let's put ourselves in her sandals and get a little personal this morning. What is it about yourself that you'd be most embarrassed to have exposed? Where do you feel most vulnerable? What makes you wonder if anyone could truly love you if they knew this about you? What would you be terrified of sharing in church or in your small group or even with a counselor? Maybe there's an addiction you've managed to keep hidden. Maybe it's something you've done in your past and you've, you've locked it away in a closet and thrown away the key and you'd rather die than have that skeleton exposed. Maybe you've been coming to church for a long time. You might even be in leadership. But you're embarrassed to admit that you don't really understand what we're talking about when the Bible is opened. You've been here so long, now it would be shameful to admit, I don't really get it. Kind of like back when I was in seminary in my 20s. I don't even want to tell you how many times it took me to get through Greek and Hebrew. It was pretty bad. And there would be a point where I'd realize, wait a minute, I'm falling behind. I'm never going to catch up. I'm not going to be ready for this exam. And I drop the class and I have to start it again and again until finally I got it. And that might be you. you you're, you're here and you know you're hearing all these things, but you don't understand it. And you're afraid that a final exam is coming. And maybe you don't get it. Or maybe you're someone who once was really sure that you were a Christian, that you believed. And now you're struggling with lots of doubts, questions. You don't know if you believe in Christianity anymore but you're afraid to say anything. Or maybe you battle with unwanted, intrusive thoughts. You'd get rid of them if you could. You'd try to stop them from happening, but the more you try to stop those thoughts, the worse they become. You think, if anyone knew what was going on in my mind, they might humiliate me or reject me. 
What is your secret source of shame? What makes you wonder if anyone could truly love you or care for you if they knew that about you? Now let's consider how Jesus meets you at this very point of vulnerability. If he sees you at your very worst, how will he deal with you? How will he treat you? If you've ever felt so messed up that if anyone knew the real you, they'd find it impossible to love you, let this woman's story introduce you to the Jesus you should know. Let's get to know him this morning, a Savior who knows you at your very worst. But the first thing he wants you to see is his stance toward you. His stance toward you is not one of distancing himself from you. No, he is moving toward you at your very point of vulnerability. We see that in verses 1 through 9. The very fact that this conversation is happening is surprising. If you look at the context of this chapter, just look at the end of John chapter 3. In verse 26, you see that Jesus decides to leave Judea because there was this dispute going on, this dispute over purification. The disciples of John the Baptist were getting agitated because so many people were going away from John and moving toward Jesus. And Jesus' disciples are now baptizing more than John's disciples are. And I love John the Baptist's response to this at the end of John chapter 3. He says, Jesus must increase, I must decrease. He points to Jesus, and he says, Jesus is from God. Jesus speaks the words of God. Jesus gives the spirit of God without measure, so I will gladly get out of the way and let the spotlight fall on Jesus. And we really don't hear anything more about John the Baptist in the Gospel of John or from him, because he was right. He must decrease so that Jesus can increase. And that's what we're going to see in chapter 4. We're going to see the mission of Jesus increasing beyond the borders of Israel. At the beginning of chapter 4, Jesus decides it's time to leave Judea, where all this conflict's going on, and go back to Galilee in the north. And we come upon this interesting statement in verse 4. What does it say? And he had to pass through Samaria. Geographically speaking, it's true that the most direct route from Judea to Galilee was to go straight up through Samaria. That was geographically the quickest way to get there. But the fact is, many devout Jews routinely went far out of their way rather than pass through this crime-ridden, broken-down, idolatrous land of Samaria. Here in Samaria were people who reminded the Jews of that time in their history when the Assyrians invaded their nation and carried off their people into exile, and then they intermarried with the poor people who remained there in Samaria, and they produced an ethnic blend that the Jews despised as racially inferior. And they practiced their religion in different temples, At one point, the Jews would actually burn down the Samaritans' temple on Mount Gerizim. That was how great the hostility was between them. They read different versions of the Torah, the Old Testament. 
The Samaritans were viewed by the Jews as deserters of the true faith. So the Jews avoided social contact with them whenever they could. They hated their guts. But Jesus had to pass through Samaria. And there's more than a geographical convenience here. There's a divine compulsion going on. Jesus refuses to avoid anyone. There's no barrier that he's not ready to break through in order to bring eternal life to those who are lost. He's on the move. And he's going into all the world with the good news of eternal life for those who are perishing in their sin. That's why he had to pass through Samaria. And he arrives in a town called Sychar to a field that had all kinds of significance in the history of God's people. Jacob had owned that field and had given it to his son Joseph. And there was a well in that field called Jacob's Well. Back in the book of Genesis... It was at a well that the lovely Rebecca was chosen to be the bride of Isaac, Abraham's son. And then again, it was at a well that Jacob himself met his beautiful bride, Rachel. So wells are romantic rendezvous in the book of Genesis. They're date night places. They are really special. And then you look at the end of chapter 3 of John, and what is John the Baptist calling Jesus? He's calling him the bridegroom. The bridegroom. So here's the shocker as you come to chapter 4. The bridegroom of God's people is seeking his bride in Samaria of all places. He's pursuing his bride among the outcasts, among the pagans. You can imagine this scene. It's noontime, the hottest time of day. Jesus and his disciples have been walking these dusty roads since sunrise. They're hot. They're sweaty from their journey. Jesus is exhausted, so he sits down beside the well. His disciples decide, we better give our master time to rest. And they go into town to buy some food. And just then, this woman from Samaria shows up. She's planned her visit to arrive at the hottest time of day. She comes alone because no one else would have wanted to come with her and because she wouldn't have wanted to be with anyone else. She's been sidelined in life. She's a social and moral and religious outcast. Shame is is so hardwired into the GPS of her soul that she steers away from anyone who might notice her or make her feel worse than she already does about herself. She has studied the art of remaining unnoticed, unseen. But there he is. A man exhausted by the sun who can see right into her soul that's been exhausted by her sin. Imagine their eyes meeting one another. I picture her averting her glance, hoping he'll just leave her alone and let her draw her water and make a beeline back to her home, but he won't let her remain in her world of self-imposed isolation. He does what no other Jewish man would have done. He speaks to her. And not with scorn or judgment, but with humility. He asks her to serve him 
to give him a drink. She's stunned. He's a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. He's a man. I'm a woman. He's a picture of purity. I'm anything but. How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaritan? Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. It's unheard of. It's unlike anything this woman has experienced up to this point in her life. But Jesus is showing that there is no barrier he will not cross in order to bring life to those who are lost. He's deliberately smashing through the barriers of morality, traditional religion, society, culture, sex. And he's looking at this woman who's a religious outsider, a heretic, a racial and moral outcast. And he says to her, let's talk. Let's start a relationship. That's the Jesus you and I should get to know personally. I don't know what you carried with you into church today. I don't know what troubles your conscience. I don't know what you've buried inside you and covered up with all these layers of respectability. I don't know what, what keeps you from really experiencing unbridled joy and peace and freedom and life. But I do know this. Jesus knows everything about you. And he, even the parts you want to keep hidden and unknown. He knows that. And what he knows about you does not cause him to, to turn away from you. It does not repel him. He's not disgusted by the worst things about you. He wants to start a conversation with you. He knows you at your worst, but he loves you still. That's the stance Jesus takes with us in our shame. He moves toward us, not away. The second thing we see in this passage is his ability. His ability to satisfy us in verses 10 through 16. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered the woman, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him, and he would give you living water. Think about what Jesus is saying there. Two things, Jesus says, would change your life forever. First, knowing who I really am. If you just knew who I really was. And secondly, asking me to do for you what only I can do. Those two things would change your life forever. Knowing who Jesus really is and asking Jesus to do for you what Jesus only can do. It's that simple. Notice he's not asking this woman to clean up her life, to get her act together. He's not telling her that she needs to bring him anything. She doesn't need to pretend she's someone she's not. Jesus is simply inviting her to get to know him. And then to ask him to give her what his generous heart is longing to give. Listen, friends. All our problems in life stem from us putting something or someone other than Jesus himself at the center of our longings. All our problems in life stem from not knowing him 
or believing him to be who he really is, believing that he is who he thinks he is. And we expect someone else or something else to carry the weight of our soul's thirst, to satisfy our deepest longings. So we run from one relationship to another or from one religious experience to another or from one church to another church or we buy things that we think that will make us happy or we put expectations on our children to become the people we've never managed to become ourselves. Anything but Jesus that you put at the center of your life to assuage the, the, the thirst of your soul is bound to leave you feeling empty, frustrated, unsatisfied, and even more thirsty. And Jesus says, I am here to satisfy your thirst like no one else can. All you need to do is believe that I am who I say I am and ask me to give you what I'm telling you. I'm so eager to give you living water. But the woman, like us, doesn't understand Jesus at first. She thinks Jesus is talking about running water, about something other than what you can get from this well that has nourished this community from the times of Jacob. And Jesus corrects her misunderstanding in verses 13 and 14. Look at what he says. Everyone who drinks from this water, the water of this well, will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water that I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Often we think that eternal life starts in heaven after we die. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says that eternal life begins right here, right now, with the life of heaven welling up in us here on earth. While we still live, Jesus is saying, I have come to satisfy your soul's deepest thirst, not just in the world to come, but in this life, right now. I want to transform you into people who are finding your satisfaction in me so that you can be a testimony to a thirsty world of the one who is able to satisfy their thirst. He's offering us a purpose, a love, an acceptance, a peace, a beauty that is so deep and so pervasive and so satisfying that no matter what happens to our health or what happens to our finances or what happens to our jobs or what happens to our family, there will be at the bottom of our souls an inexpressible joy that is bubbling up through the parched desert of this life. We will be like Gandalf. In Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, where it says, In his face, there were only lines of care and sorrow, but underneath there was a great joy, a fountain of mirth, enough to set a kingdom laughing. That's what happens in the lives of those who come to Jesus and drink the living water. But like the woman in verse 15, we usually don't really get what Jesus is talking about when he tells us the first time or the fifth time or the tenth time or the fifteenth time. It takes a while for it really to sink into our hearts who Jesus really is, what he really gives to those who ask him. She thinks Jesus is offering to relieve her of the fatiguing work of coming to draw water and the heat 
of the day. She misunderstands. But thankfully, Jesus keeps pursuing her. Just because she misunderstands doesn't mean she flunks out. We don't get rejected as candidates for the gospel just because we don't understand it right away. No. Jesus keeps pressing in. He keeps peeling away the layers of unbelief and ignorance and doubt and fear that prevent us from hearing his gospel as the good news that it really is. He brings us to a point where we see him for who he really is and we're ready to ask him to give us what only he can give. And verses 16 through 26 give us a window into how he does it. In these verses, we see, thirdly, Jesus' gospel aim. How does Jesus bring this woman to the point of believing in him, and how does he do that for us? Well, verse 16, look at that verse. Seems like it comes totally out of the blue, but it's like proton radiation targeted at the precise spot where the cancer is most malignant. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said, you are right in saying you have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. What is the great physician doing here? Why is he exposing this raw nerve? Why is he bringing her greatest source of shame out into the open? Well, he's exposing the broken cistern where this woman has been trying to satisfy her thirst for so long. She's gone from man to man to man, and what she's experienced in those relationships has been a combination of rejection, rebellion, disappointment, maybe death, maybe divorce. For sure, she's experienced disorientation and disillusionment in relationship after relationship with men. And even though five men have left her soul parched, she's still running back to that same broken cistern that can hold no water. Now she's living with a man who's not her husband. And that's what's making her a social outcast, even in a country of outcasts. Even the Samaritans are like, okay, this is enough. We don't want to have anything to do with her. So why is Jesus exposing her shame like this? Not to shame her, but to save her. Not to condemn this sinner in this sinful world, but to bring the conviction of the Holy Spirit that will cause her to see him for who he really is and ask him to do for her what only he can do. Jesus is exposing the shame not to leave her isolated, but to set her free and to bring her into a family of worshipers who know the Father and who worship him in spirit and in truth. Look at verse 16, and you see here a Jesus 
who never interacts with the pretend you. You can come to church and lots of people will say, hi, how are you doing to the pretend you? Jesus doesn't talk to the pretend you. Jesus only deals with the real you. Because the real you is who Jesus cares for. I heard a pastor saying Jesus doesn't care for the rehabilitated, futuristic version of you. The you that's gotten your act all together. The you that's finally managed to be worthy. No. Jesus comes to you just as you are. And he cares for the real you. He meets you in the pigsty of your rebellion. He finds you when you've got your head down in the slop. And he says, I want to talk with you right now. With all that mess running down your cheeks. Because you're the one I love. Jesus is the only one who's qualified to take the key you've kept hidden and unlock the closet that holds the skeletons of your past. He's the only one who has the ability to probe into the darkest corners of your heart and expose the secret shame that you most dread to bring into the light. No one else can do that skillfully and bring healing. But Jesus can because he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus knows what the weight and shame of your sin feels like because the Lord was pleased to lay on Jesus the iniquity of us all. Jesus has felt the touch of your sin and shame. And Jesus knows how to carry it away. So there's nothing you can hide from him. There's nothing you need to pretend with him. There's nothing so awful about you that could keep him from loving you. He already knows. He knows you at your worst. And he is still so kind. So kind. Look at how the woman responds to Jesus' probing expose of her heart in verse 19. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. You're on to something here. And immediately she asks him a question about proper places of worship. Mount Gerizim, like the Samaritans do, or in Jerusalem. And some people read this and they think the woman is being evasive trying to escape the searching gaze of Jesus into her heart and life, trying to change the subject. I don't actually think that's what's going on here. I think this woman is meeting for the first time someone who can lead her into a living relationship with God. And she's got questions about how to find God, how to meet God, how to know God personally. What does it really mean to worship God? And Jesus is happy to lead her out of her isolation, out of her alienation, into a living relationship with the Father who is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and truth. So Jesus points her forward. 
to an hour that is coming, an hour that is coming very soon when the ultimate sacrifice will be made. The temple of Jesus' body will be sacrificed on the cross once for all so that the physical curtain of the temple can be torn in two and worshipers from all over the world, from Judea, Jerusalem, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, outsiders and insiders, moral and immoral, men and women can experience the cleansing of their sins and being welcomed into the presence of God and worship God now as our Father in spirit and in truth. We don't need to go to a special place. We only need to come to Jesus and he will show us the truth about the Father and he will send his spirit into our hearts so that from the depths of our spirits we can cry out to God, Abba, Father, and love him and adore him for who he is. Hearing all of this makes this woman long for the Messiah who will come and explain everything about how broken people like her can enter into a living relationship with God. That's what her heart is longing for in verse 25. For the Messiah who will come and explain to us all things. And Jesus meets that longing with a most magnificent revelation in verse 26. Look at what it says. Jesus told her, I the one speaking to you am he. Wow. This is the first time in John's gospel that Jesus declares himself to be the Messiah. And he chooses not to do it with his own people, the Jews, but with an unnamed Samaritan woman, with an outcast. With her, he decides, you will be the first in this gospel to hear that I am the Messiah. And in many, place, many ways, this would be a great place to end the story. Because what Jesus does for this unnamed woman is what he wants to do for you and for me. He wants us to know that he sees us at our worst. and He's not disgusted. He's not ashamed to welcome us into his father's family. He's the bridegroom. He's willing to make us his bride. He wants you and me to know, just like the Samaritan woman came to know, that he is the Messiah. He is the long-awaited Savior King who comes to set us free from the shame of our sin and who comes to draw us out of our alienation from God and welcome us into the Father's family. That's what Jesus wants us to know. But the story doesn't end where this conversation between Jesus and the woman ends. The story ends with what this woman does with the conversation she's just had with Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't intend to change her life alone, but he wants to change the lives of many other people through her. The gospel has come to her like living water so that the gospel can run through her like living waters into her community. And Jesus wants the same thing to happen through you and through me. So the last point this morning is about Jesus' mission his mission. You cannot get to know Jesus as Messiah without also entering into the Messiah's mission. His mission is to save the world. Precisely at the moment when Jesus reveals himself to the woman as the Messiah, two reactions occur. First, the disciples come back and they're like, what is he doing? Talking to a woman? 
what is wrong? And they don't say anything. They're just, they're just mind-boggled. And the woman, in the middle of all this, just drops her water jar, forgets all about the reason she came to the well, and starts running into the town to see all the people she's been avoiding for years. And to say to them, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And the people start running back to Jacob's well to see Jesus. As the people of the town are coming to him, Jesus reveals what's in the depths of his heart for this sinful world that he came to save. His disciples keep saying to him, Rabbi, you've got to eat something. You're, you're, you haven't had enough to eat. You've got to get some nourishment. Jesus says, oh, no. I have food to eat that you don't know anything about in verse 32. And they misunderstand him. So he makes it crystal clear in verse 34. Look at that verse. Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. This is something Jesus wants us to understand about his mission to save lost sinners. He wants us to know that he is putting his whole heart and soul into it. There's nothing Jesus loves more than to save sinners. There's nothing that satisfies him more, nourishes him more than to do the Father's work of putting our broken lives back together again so that we can become worshipers of the Father. That's what, that's what Jesus' heart loves to do. It's not obligatory for him. He's not on the clock. He's doing this out of the, the love and the goodness of his heart towards sinners. That's what he wants us to understand. This is Jesus' life. It is his food. It's what satisfies him at the core of his being. That's his mission. That's his heart. And he's mobilizing us to join him in that. Listen, we sometimes look at the world around us and we see nothing but parched ground. What does Jesus see? Jesus sees a harvest. That's what he sees. I wonder if we see the world around us the way Jesus does. I wonder if sometimes we're waiting for conditions to change in our community or in people's lives before we move toward people. When what Jesus wants us to see is a field that is ready for harvest. Is there anyone in your life right now who you view as a lost cause? How might this story change your view of what Jesus could do in the life of that person? Just look at how the story ends. Look at how Jesus dignifies this woman's testimony. Many of the Samaritans from that town start believing in Jesus because of how that woman speaks of him. And when they come to Jesus and ask him to stay with them, he stays there for two more days, answering their questions, caring for their souls, loving the people the way he loved this woman. Look at verse 41. Many more believed because of what he said. And they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, since we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the Savior of the world. Listen, you cannot become saved by just assenting to someone else's testimony. 
You have to come to see Jesus yourself. Hear Jesus yourself and believe in Jesus yourself because he really is the savior of the world. And that's where I want to end today. Jesus really is the savior of the world. He really is the savior of the Fox Valley. He really is the savior of broken down, messed up, sexually immoral people. He is the savior that you and I need. So let the invitation that comes at the end of the Bible stir your heart to respond to him today and come and drink the living water. Let's put that verse from Revelation on the screen. And let's just read this aloud so that everyone in this room hears the invitation of God to thirsty souls and sees that Jesus is the one who comes to satisfy. Let's say this together with joy. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life freely. Amen. Let's pray together.